Nice to have you listening. We've got your third Link 3 song coming up after 3 o'clock and we'll try and give away the prize then as well. But guesses are welcome on 2101. We've heard from the Lars singing There She Goes and also Fleetwood Mac singing Rhiannon. Right now, time for New Zealand sporting history. And today's guest has conquered the summit of Mount Everest not once but six times. In 1988, Lydia Brady became the first woman to summit the world's highest peak without supplemental oxygen and was in fact the first New Zealander of any gender to do so. In the 2020 New Year's Honours, Lydia was appointed an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to mountaineering and she has volunteered some of her Thursday afternoon to talk about her amazing achievements. Hi Lydia. Hello, how, how are you? Yeah, nice to talk to you again. It's been a few years and um, we've never actually taken a good look at the summit of Mount Everest. Let's hear your climbing story first of all. When did you get interested in climbing? Oh, I got interested in climbing when I was 14. Well, interested in tramping when I was 14 and my mother sent me on a mountain craft course in Arthur's Pass run by the guy Paddy Freeney who discovered mowers or spotted mowers. Um, hey. Yeah, yeah, well, that's another story. So, and uh, he um, he was teaching like 14-year-olds and, you know, we're all over the place. We're just hiking and stuff. And we did this little abseil that's like two metres long or three metres high. And at the bottom of it, he goes, you know, a few of you, because there was a whole heap of us, a few of you will go away and become trampers. And then as a throwaway line, he goes, occasionally one of you becomes a climber. And it was that, like, I didn't know what a climber was, but it sounded really good. <laughs> you stuck with it or, or you came back to it later? No, I didn't. Well, it took me a while to discover climbing. I was super bad at sports. Like, I was a writer of poetry at, uh, in my, as a teenager and, and uh, was really not very good at sports at all. But um, tramping introduced me to using my body, but not in team sports and... That was really cool. And so there I got stronger and then I started training and, you know, la-di-da, became a mountaineer. You spent some time in Yosemite Valley in California. I did. That I spent nine months of my life there in three different seasons. And way back in, for people who may not know about Yosemite Valley, it's got um, the big valley in uh, California and it has cliffs that are over a thousand metres high. And some of them are slightly overhanging for a large part of that thousand meters. And in the olden days, when I was young, then those cliffs were climbed. They were so sheer. We couldn't climb them like uh, Alex Honnold climbs now and, you know, free solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to climb them using aid climbing. And some of the climbs are still so hard that um, they're climbed by aid climbing. So I couldn't climb rock, rock climbing very well. I wasn't very brave. I kind of had a, you know, like a round body with skinny arms and legs sticking out of it, <laughs> like a bush robin. <laughs> so, and anyhow, so it wasn't very brave, and so you have to be a little bit gymnastic to rock climb. So uh, I wanted to be up on those walls, you know. People would come down and they'd say, yeah, and they tell all these stories about being up on the big walls for six days, seven days, eight days, and it was just such a big adventure. So I went aid climbing instead. Hmm. Um, what was driving you at that point? Why were you climbing? Have you worked that out? Or did you work it out then? Uh, an old boyfriend of mine who is also a high achiever, 
he always says that high achievers are always insecure over achievers. And so we can't, I mean, you know, a lot of us are driven by different things. I guess I wanted to be successful in some way. Um, but at the same time, I didn't necessarily want to follow a path of uh, um, order, if you like. I kind of like disorder. I like, uh, I, I love not knowing what's going to happen in a couple of months' time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, so I, I found in uh, mountaineering, I found people from all different social spheres and really good storytellers. And I th that really was one of the things that started me. Plus, I discovered big nature. And uh, it was the mountains that sung to me. I remember from previous conversations with you, Lydia, that you have a very good understanding of what makes yourself tick, and you're also very articulate at describing it. And I wonder if it's a kind of a chicken-egg situation. Like, you obviously get a bit of um, uh, mindful, uh, in-the-moment time when you're doing these expeditions. I wonder if that helps your brain, helps you to kind of figure things out, or maybe just that sort of person is attracted to that sort of life. I think both or either and um, or different people, like people who really like structure and order are also attracted to working in big nature, you know, like people, mm -hmm. people with notebooks and graphs and, and spreadsheets and, and who are really good at things like that. Um, one of the things I do is I do presentations. In fact, that's what I've been doing today is preparing for a presentation in Australia, which I'm very excited about. Mm -hmm. And these, I take this time in my prep to um, do lots of reading and research and see if the ideas, for example, about, say, resilience, which is kind of the current word, um, develop into something that sings to me and I can relate to the mountains. And it's sort of like studying your own life. You come up with these ever more simple reasons why you what you get out of mountaineering i'm talking to lydia brady uh we're going to talk about her climbing everest and once you begin to climb is everest always there in the distance and <laughs> is something that you want to do or is it not something you consider until you've done a few other peaks well i don't know well you know uh I know that once I went to high altitude, probably Everest was out there dingle dangling at the end of a stick. But at the same time, uh, you know, you've got you've got an apprenticeship. I mean, nowadays, if you go and and go on a guided ascent, your apprenticeship doesn't have to be so um, so long. But if mm. you're climbing for yourself and carrying your own loads. And making your own decisions about the snow and all of those things, then your apprenticeship needs to be a little bit longer. Well, quite a lot longer. And uh, so I can't remember exactly when I started thinking about Everest. But in India in, two, in 1987, I had a big epic. And I'm, I think we've probably talked about that. But it's in my book too. Lots of avalanches, uh, six avalanches in one day. And and uh, buried myself in a snow cave that um, I dug and then the snow collapsed on me. So I buried myself in the mountain. Oh, and uh, anyway, we, the two of us miraculously found each other again and, uh, and John dug me out. And 
we didn't know at that point whether we were going to continue on and be able to survive, but we didn't complain about it. And I think that then I realized I had, I didn't know what the mechanism was. And I've explored this extensively since, but the there was something that made us stronger. And basically, we didn't complain. You know, we took the responsibility. I mean, it sucked if we were going to die, of course, but um, we didn't want to. But we took the responsibility in that we didn't bring the other person down. And so, you know, these are these things that continually um, allow you to um, figure out why you're what you're getting out of it because you know it's quite fun to do something that's quite hard get to a top get some great views have an amazing time with people and then get back but also feel that you've been able to learn and grow on the other side of life what is the feeling like to accept that you might die soon oh i don't know if i uh well hmm uh I, you know you just don't want to. <laughs> no. I mean, you just you really don't want to. You know, people who do really exposed things, their lives are really precious because they've got spent a lot of time getting to that point. You know, people who do big tricks with their bikes or um, are really um, big mountain skiers or, um, you know, or mountaineers or all the other things, sail big oceans. You know, their lives are so precious to them. Uh, they, But um, I, think, I think the thing is that none of us want to actually suffer and mm. uh, so you know maybe in the perfect world if I'm going to die in the mountains and I don't really think I'm going to now but you never know if I am going to die I want it to be quick and I don't really want to know much about it yeah you know? I mean it's just a normal human but normal uh, but, humans but, don't get this close to it or, or at least they don't know that they've um, gotten this close to it okay I so you though, yeah well, I could tell you that um, it really is really cool to climb Mount Everest. You know, it's really cool to be up there because you don't get much of a view until you're on summit day. And then you're really, really, really high. Hmm. And then you're climbing this thing that everyone knows about and you've known about since you were a child. It is, it, people go on about all the different sides of it, the commercialization of us and why would you do that? And it's a circus and everything, but it's really awesomely cool. How long does it take to prepare for something like you did in, it was 1988, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, I was on K2, the second highest mountain, immediately before that. Oh, yeah. Carrying, fixing ropes, carrying my own loads, getting to 6,800 metres, then down, getting to 7,300 metres, then down. So we didn't have weather forecasting in those days, so this was the biggest um, obstruction or, or, or uh, not obstruction, but uh, challenge. And uh, so I was pretty acclimatized. And then I also, yeah, I was acclimatized. But in, in fitness, you, you're always pretty yeah. fit. It's, you're not training in a particular way as, um, uh, as summit day approaches. No. Okay. I'm getting old and rusty. And, you know, I, I, I'm not. Remember, I said I wasn't that good at athletes, so I've sort of crashed and burned a few times skiing, and uh, you know I've got sort of I've got knees that haven't got lots of good things going on with them, <laughs> <laughs> and I've had a hip replacement, and the first one wasn't that good, so I had to had to redo it with a different surgeon, and you know, and and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's bits of me that aren't working as perfectly as they did once upon a time. Okay. But back to 1988, um, and oh. you climbed in October. Is that 
a good time to climb Everest? That's a really good question, Jesse. Uh, we never started to be guided in the 90s, in the mid-90s, really. Then uh, people always ended up guiding it pre-monsoon. So that's uh, April, May, as summit periods. And um, there was more snow because – no, there was less snow, of course, because you've gone through winter, and winter doesn't uh-huh. dump all the snow. The, the monsoon dumps all the snow, really. Oh, yeah. Uh, and – that so that that was a surprise to me. I learned, but in the olden days, you would just go when you could get a permit, and there were far fewer permits issued. So you just took the permit for the time that you could get. And yeah, October was pretty late. I mean, ideally, you'd, if you were climbing it post monsoon, you'd climb it in September. But you know, it was a long expedition. Who was in your team? We had a double team. We had. The famous Rob Hall of New Zealand's famous Rob Hallness and Gary Ball, <laughs> they started Adventure Consultants and they uh, they went on to do the Seven Summits in, I don't know, a year or something. And uh, they started guiding Everest, well, Rob did. Um, and they were also the people who denied that I'd summited Everest, um, by the way. There was also another. Um, we were joint with some Slovaks and some. So, sorry, who, who? I know we'll get to this, but who, who yeah. denied that you'd climbed Everest? Well, Rob and Gary uh, and another member of the team. Um, we was we were split because of a a, a a storm. Not split like unintentionally. I decided to go down to base camp to rest on us, and uh, the others stayed up at camp two which means that I was one day behind them when it came to going for the summit. So when I got up five days later, they were a little bit run down because I've been hanging out at 6,500. And then they made an attempt um, on a route uh, we didn't have a permit for, and they got to about 7,800 metres. Meanwhile, I got to Camp 2, and then the next day they went down and I went up to Camp 4, and the following day I summited. And the following day, they left base camp. And once they got to Kathmandu, they made an official statement to the ministry that I didn't summit Mount Everest. You know, just a classic hashtag me too thing. Must have soured relations somewhat. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty hard. I mean, it was a pretty hard thing to deal with. But what I, uh, but I've talked about it heaps and I've written about it. And the reason I wrote in my book is so I didn't have to talk about it because I kind of, uh, I'm more interested in the future rather than the deep past saying. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Tell me then, and we've been mentioning this aspect of it, um, which is the non, without using supplemental oxygen. So tell me about the decision to do that and what that means exactly. Okay, well, breathing at altitude is pretty hard and quite a few people, but when I say few probably maybe nine or 12 ascents of Everest had been done since 19, I think it was 73 or 78, maybe 1978, when Reinhold Messner and Peter Habler first made uh, the ascent of Everest without oxygen. And it's, it is super hard. It's super hard to breathe at altitude. So, you know, when you do those peak flow meters, you know, the cardboard tube mm. thing, and they ask you to do a big breath. And so you breathe out everything so you can breathe in everything, you know, to get the biggest breath ever. 
And breathing out is quite hard work, isn't it? Like, you know, so yeah. imagine how hard you got to breathe out. Well, that's what you've got to do at altitude mm-hmm. because there's not enough air. So if you're not on oxygen or O's, as we say in the, in the, uh, in the jargon, if you haven't got O's, then uh, you're going to be breathing out everything you can so that you can breathe in as much air as possible. And uh, because you want to take as much volume because there's not very much oxygen. And this all does things like changes your pH of your body because you're not keeping some CO2 in the bottom of your lungs. And, you know, there's all sorts of biochemistry. It's pretty interesting, but it is hard. And uh, some people obviously could never do it. And there's probably people in your studio, in even you, that had you done the training or were you impassioned and cashed up, so to speak, uh, you could maybe you could be better than anyone at climbing mm. Everest without oxygen. You know, we just don't know. You probably know with me because I tried one of those oxygen flow meters, and even though I didn't have asthma, I was about as bad as a uh, as a as a chronic asthmatic. So, yeah, don't think you'd want me in your yeah. team. Stick with, stick with the, the radio, though. Stick with the <laughs> checks. You got on quite well with the Czechoslovakian climbers, eh? Yeah, yeah, I did actually, and uh, I got an invite um, from one, uh, one of them or two of them to join them on um, Polish expeditions. Which is like, would you like to come uh, on the gold medal mm-hmm. expedition next year? You know, something. So really, I did. I learned a lot from them, and. Uh, yeah, I learned a lot from them and they're really precious. But, um, you know, and so going back, even though I've gone back as a guide, which I'm very proud of, you know, you still continue to learn from the people that you climb with, even if, I say even, but, uh, if they're clients, it doesn't really matter. You can still, you know, you still spend time with interesting people. Tell me about that last climb. My last Everest climb? Well, the, the the final summit, I guess, the summit climb. Oh, you mean the last minutes or the la- of the first climb or the, sorry, sorry, radio. <laughs> yeah, sorry, so which, which is your last Tell climb? me about getting to the top of Everest for the first time, which I understood oh, okay, took okay. you about 12 hours. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when I got to the South Summit, so the South Summit is 100 vertical metres from the main summit, uh, and in between the South Summit and the main summit was the Hillary Step. Now, now there's even more than the Hillary Step, which was really amazing. Like there's, as in, it's not a snow ridge with one rocky step, well, uh, which is quite complex, but there's two rocky steps in it. It's, it's, it's quite technical, but we fix it with ropes. Way back in 88, there were no fixed ropes, but we were quite a reasonably good climbers, you know, stomp, stomp, stomp. And <laughs> I, um, I met the Spanish. They were on oxygen at one Spanish expedition. They were going down. They had some people who were really sick with altitude. So they were a little bit stressed. And then they went down and um, I really had to make a decision whether I was going to go up or down. And I think that is the point where I've, of the biggest risk I've ever taken in my life for me, I'm not really a risk taker. Mm. Like I'm really, really, I, I know it sounds crazy. Oh, you're a mountaineer. But actually, I'm incredibly conservative for people who know me well would go, I'm really elite at keeping safe. Um, and, you know, I don't ski very fast and I'm not really powerful. And, you know, just all these things just make me uh, um, who I am, but in extraordinary places. Um, so I 
did take the most risk I've probably ever taken and uh, going from the south summit to the main summit because I figured I could get to the main summit, um, which is probably fairly optimistic, but it turned out okay, obviously. And uh, I wasn't sure if I'd have enough energy to get down. And so I got to the main summit, which took ages, and there was a tiny, tiny wee rope on part of the Hillary step, but not on other part of it. And I held on to that, but I didn't have a harness on because there was no ropes to mm. use a harness with. And Who's with you, Lydia? In, me? No, nobody else. Just you. Just me. Just me from the Camp 3 up to Camp 4 and then from Camp 4 to the summit. But it's not technically a solo, right, because uh, I didn't go from base camp on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and anyway, and so I got over the Hillary step because going up is always easier than going down on technical terrain. And then I got to the summit and I was just hugely relieved to be able to turn around because there's this, I have this opinion that there's this quirky thing about altitude that it's way easier to go down than to go up. Oh, yeah. But with a more of a difference than if you're at, say, sea level. I, there could be a going up, going down Got it. graph thing. Yeah, yeah. But anyhow, it's really, really easy going down. And if you're kind of competent on your feet in the mountains, then certainly, um, you know, that sort of makes things a bit more efficient. So I guess the only time I really thought that maybe I wouldn't really, really get down is when I had to reverse the Hillary step. It was quite exposed, a bit of bridging, you know, one foot on one side of a little gully, one foot on the other side of space between your feet. And I thought, oh, I don't want to go down there, I'll fall. And then I kind of go, well, I could just sit here, but the outcome will be the same. So I think um, those emotions and ration, ration, uh, mm-hmm. self-rationalizing, um, I've used them a couple of times in my life, just, well, <laughs> you know, otherwise, yeah. What's it like at the top? Oh, it's, it's, it's actually really awesome. It's, it was cold. It was a little bit cold and windy for me when I didn't have oxygen, uh, but a great relief. And then when I, it was really cool to go back the first time I guided, it was 2008. And so 20 years and it had changed quite radically. Mm. And what was cool, because remember, you know, I started mountaineering as a tramper and trampers in New Zealand go up ridge, up one ridge, up to a little knob or a summit or a peak or something. And then they go down another ridge and that's transalpine tramping. And uh, that's what made me fall in love with the mountains. And so I got to the top of Mount Everest on my first guided trip. Remember, there's ropes everywhere, gazillion people. Um, there's lots of prayer flags, and the prayer flags are all tied together with pieces of string. And that's all decorated up on the summit of Mount Everest because mm-hmm. the ships carry, carry mm-hmm. them up. And so you've got all these people sort of tied together but unclipping from mm-hmm. the end of the rope and getting really excited about a really exposed summit with these spiky things called crampons all getting like all semi not quite tangled up with prayer flags and strings it's um it's kind of funny uh but you've got to keep an eye on it but anyhow so i look over the edge and i look down the north side because that comes from uh, tibet china and there's ropes there and i just go oh this would be the best trans alpine tramping trip in the world <laughs> to go just to keep going just, oh, just to keep going and you know 
because I because there's I, I'd know there's ropes, I'd be able to find my way down because you'd know there's ropes all the way, and uh, it would be so much fun. I know, but that's that's been um, that's not been given permission for for quite a few years now from the Chinese. Yeah, and, and the view pretty good. Oh, the view's amazing, but I think I still think that it's the experience or the view of, of the next 100 meters when you're from the south summit and you're climbing up that you're on this summit because it really does become a summit and the summit ridge is quite exposed you know the hillary step is quite exposed as, as are other sections and they've changed since the uh 1980s you know pieces of snow have fallen away and there's a, a you know there's a dip down where there used to be a there's a raised thing and you know the, the mountains changing. Um, oh, it's oh, it's pretty cool. It's really cool. Is it an emotional moment? Oh yeah. Well, first time I was there, I had like a wee tear in my eye. Mm. Probably not on the summit because I was too worried about crampons mm-hmm. and prayer flags. <laughs> but uh, definitely getting there. And the last two summits that I've guided have just been absolutely, utterly exceptional days and. Uh, my partner, Dino, who's guided it nine times, so we've got quite a few Everest descents in our house, mm-hmm. um, he always says, hey, you should just quit while you're ahead. And and I have turned down more jobs on Everest, but, um, you know, I, you never know. I'm getting older, though. Um, but the last two times have been just exceptional. You know, the one time from the south, which is the Nepal side on snow, and we passed like 75 people and then we were ahead and we had these two guys, who were, um, one Kiwi and one Australian, and they were really strong and fit and they had awesome, awesome Sherpas. And the Sherpas, of course, knew we'd passed everybody, but the two, the two guys, they kind of were in their zone of like, you know, climbing hard. <laughs> and uh, they didn't know that we were really going well. And in fact, between the South Summit, which is 100 vert, as I said, from the main summit and the main summit, I had to like decide, I had to slow them down. And the Sherps were carrying all the spare oxygen because we worked for a really high-end company and had lots of oxygen, so we weren't going to run out. And I had to, like, slow them down because even though their packs were really heavy, they were so excited about having Everest to ourselves. <laughs> so we had, like, 40 minutes to ourselves or 30 minutes to ourselves, and we watched the dawn come up. And oh. then the next year, which was that really, really busy year, 2019, and there were photos, and, and everyone said, you know, it all, it's all going pear-shaped and Everest was a circus, then on the north side, by skipping one whole camp, I was, uh, Roxanne Vogel and my client and I, summited from Camp 2 return, uh, and we only had, we had the whole mountain to ourselves the whole day. Just to finish this first climb off before we hit the news, um, you returned to base camp, and sadly, some of those chicks that you got to know, um, they died on that trip. Yes, 50% of my expedition died on that trip. Yeah. They died because they were doing a super hard route. Storm came in. Uh, they summited Everest, but uh, they got nailed on the way down. It was gutting. Yeah. You really felt it, eh? I really, really did. And I still do, you know. I still, it's just one, a couple of, or two of the four people I had become really close to. And, uh, yep, no, it's probably never gone away. We're not going to have time for all those other uh, summits. I've really enjoyed hearing <laughs> about this one, though. Um, and you've got a book. Tell people about your book. 
book is called Going Up Is Easy. Uh, <laughs> and um, it has been translated into French. Uh, and also, I do take time um, writing on, on my Instagram. You know, when I do write, I, I think about what I write. So uh, although uh, Lawrence Fernley, she helped, well, she wrote the book for me. Um, I've been trying to get my own writing skills up a little bit more since using social media. Uh, thank you, Lydia. Really nice to talk to you today. Congratulations on that big day all those years ago and the courage it took. Um, and we'll talk again, I'm sure. Okay, thanks, Jesse. Lydia Bye-bye. Brady, Lydia Brady for our series on New Zealand sporting history, talking about conquering the summit of Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen. The only New Zealander to do so, the first woman in the world to do so.